welcome to the Qubit Guy podcast brought to you by Classic, the quantum algorithm design company. My name is Yuval, and my guest today is Russ Fine, Managing Director at Corporate Fuel Partner, a private equity firm. Russ and I talk about vertical integration in the quantum computing space, about what gets lost in translation between business executives and engineers, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please let us know how we did by emailing hello at classic.io. That's hello at classiq.io. Hello, Russ, and thanks for joining me today. Hey, Val. Thanks so much for having me. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Russ Fine. I work with a company called Corporate Fuel. It's a merchant banking business, meaning it's got two areas of practice. One is a traditional investment bank, providing merger and acquisition services to buyers and sellers of companies. But we also have a principal investment arm, which is the part of the business I run, where we've made a number of um, technology investments over the year from a pretty hands-on oriented perspective. My background is both operations and finance. So this is a good role for me and um, trying to leverage now my knowledge of quantum computing into both sides of our business, both the advisory practice as well as uh, prospectively for a new investment fund. How long have you been in quantum or what got you into this field? You know, that's an interesting question. And maybe like others listening, I, I've always been curious about quantum. I, I was a young early user of computers way back in grade school. We had a mainframe at our high school and I used to play around on one of the terminals. And as a hobbyist, I bought a Sinclair uh, ZX80 back in 1980. It had all of 8K of RAM. And although I couldn't do much with it, um, some basic basic programming, uh, it, it piqued my interest. But as an investment professional, I've missed both the PC um, investment opportunities and the internet investment opportunities. And when I started reading more about quantum computing, um, probably in early COVID, um, I thought to myself, I'm not going to make this mistake again. I'm going to learn about investment opportunities in quantum. And fortunately or unfortunately, I had a lot of time on my hands with, with, uh, with uh, the, the um, pandemic. And so I used a lot of that time to read hundreds of articles and there's lots of great online resources. I've taken some online courses and um, Boston um, Consulting Group has some great white papers, which I've read. Uh, there's interesting tutorials. Q Control has a great tutorial. Uh, Quantum Country has a great Q tutorial. tutorial. Um, I tried to refresh my linear algebra with things like Khan Academy and um, Three Blue, One Brown on, on um, YouTube. And so I've been on a, on a pretty intense journey through much of the pandemic, trying to learn as much as I can about quantum computing. And what do you find when you think about the quantum community as opposed to other type of professional communities that you've encountered over your career? What's your observation of the quantum community? Well, a few things. There, there is a ton of information. You know, the internet has this generally that there's a ton of information. Not all of it's edited, not all of it's correct. Uh, so you somewhat have to weed through that. But on the, on the plus side, I've been really impressed how open and engaging the community is. It's reasonably easy with just a little bit of energy to attend online seminars and engage with people in the space, to connect with people online through LinkedIn or Twitter or other mechanisms. There's a, a lot of great people writing content and sharing content and happy to talk about content. So I've been really excited about the openness of the community and immersing myself into it. And at the same time, on the far end of the spectrum, you've got most of the software being written for quantum computing is open source. And I think the spirit of that open source 
um, sharing um, philosophy is, is really serving the industry well, especially in these early years. And it's been great for me to get up the learning curve. I think you also have a blog with some uh, pieces that are quite long form. What's the angle? What's, what do you think that needs to be covered in this blog that you didn't see elsewhere? Yeah, thanks for that, Yuval. So the, the cliche of the origin of the blog was, if you want to learn something, the best way to learn it is to teach it. And so I set out to write the blog for two reasons. One was to really dig in myself and make sure I understood some of the concepts really well. But also, whenever I talked to my non-science, non-quantum friends, they would get really confused or would hear certain things about Schrodinger's cat or quantum computing being impossible to understand. And I wanted to, I wanted to create a resource that, so that people like that could appreciate and understand, at least from a implication and perspectively, a business perspective, how quantum computing might work and how it might impact them. So that was, that's really the, the origin of it. And the blog covers both technical topics as well as business topics. And I think your background is unique that you are able to speak to both audiences and on one hand, speak to engineers or scientists, and on the other hand, speak with um, executives, business executives. What do you think that's getting lost in translation when these two groups speak with each other? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I do think I'm well positioned for it. I've, I've got an interesting professional background that's been both on the operating side of businesses as well as on the finance side. And so from the operating perspective, I got a great uh, appreciation for what it takes to actually take ideas and products to market. In uh, my current situation at Corporate Fuel, I, I mentioned we've made a few investments um, and we didn't set out to be a venture fund, but we've made a, a number of different adventure investments and we've invested in things like precision lasers, where lasers were used to do tiny, to, to um, create tiny features in medical devices as, as small as one micron in, in size characteristics, which is incredibly small. And the science and the mechanics and the material handling of dealing with that was, was pretty nuanced. And so I used to love to go to the, to the factory and see, talk to the people online, talk about what their challenges were, talk about what they discovered as ways to circumvent challenges and would then translate that or take that information to the investors to get the investors exciting about excited about the company generally or to invest in a subsequent round things like that um, so that that so I think that gives me a, a really unique unique background and that's one of the things I'm trying to do with my blog and with my firm is to take that ability to synthesize and understand the business challenges in a way that matter to the investment people not that um, everything is all about investments and that the investment um, people are the most important, but oftentimes without the money, you, you can't do the great science. And so it's really important, I think, to make sure the investors are well, can, can appreciate what's happening, understand what the constraints are, understand what the opportunities are so they could uh, be as support as supportive as possible. I'm not sure if that fully answered your question. I, I think it's great background. So my question was, what does get, lost in translation. Uh, when a business executive talks to an engineer, what does the engineer not hear? And, and conversely, when uh, the, the, other, the other direction. Yeah, that, so yeah, thanks for, for refining that. So often, often I would find when I talk to the engineers, they sometimes, they usually love what they're doing. Very often it's, it's, a, it's a field of passion for them. And sometimes they get lost a little bit and they lose the forest for the trees 
It might be so interested in solving a particular problem or challenge because it's intellectually curious to them or interesting to them, but there may not be a great business application for that. Conversely, the business people may think or summarize certain solutions or achievements that they think are um, maybe easier to get to, um, but don't understand the resources involved and maybe maybe be in a position of under-resourcing a particular need. And so aligning those two sides um, you know, is part of the challenge and I think is something um, that I've done well in the past and hope to continue to do in the future. If there was one metric that you want an, an executive to understand, I mean, sometimes people get caught in the number of qubits. I have more qubits than you, and therefore yeah. my machine is stronger. Um, it's an easy number to understand, but does it really tell the whole story? How would you explain or how would you convey to an executive what the true power of a particular model of a quantum computer? You know, as we're looking at the very early stages of a disk quantum computing, um, there is sort of a race to come up with more and more qubits because people somewhat understand what a qubit is and they, they somewhat rightfully assume more qubits is good, but it's much more nuanced than that. Um, and that's one of the biggest things, one of the challenges I see is people discuss the size of a computer or a quantum computer by the number of qubits. And um, it's a lot more nuanced. Um, one, of the, one of the most important confusions people have are physical qubit bits versus logical qubits. What I mean by that is a physical qubit is the actual physical qubit, the, the electron or the, or the um, photon that's being manipulated for quantum purposes. Um, but, the, but it may not be a logical qubit. A logical qubit is a qubit that's actually used in an algorithm. And most of what we're seeing now when we're talking about people expanding the number of qubits is to include error correction. And so that's why you'll have a lot more physical qubits than logical qubits, because a lot of those qubits are dedicated to error correction. So that's just one uh, common distinction that you, you really need to understand when someone says, I have X numbers of qubits. Are they really logical qubits or are they just uh, physical qubits? Both are good. More is better, but they are very different. But beyond just the qubits, there's a lot more going on in a quantum computer than just a uh, qubit um, registering as a zero or a one or something in between. Um, you need to connect qubits together um, and they need to stay in their, in their, in their um, state for a long enough time for the uh, equations to run. Um, you need to connect them in various ways. And so how many can be connected at once? How long do they stay connected? So there's decoherence that happens as noise comes into a system and these qubits run out, you know, lose their superposition or, or their entanglement. Um, so there are a lot of metrics. IBM has proposed something called quantum volume, which is one standard that's being proposed to synthesize some of these metrics together. I think that's a good one, although not everybody agrees. So there are various terms being used. And I just caution people when they hear about quantum computing to be careful when they hear a number and make sure they understand what is really underneath that number. Because of your investment uh, investment banking background, I wanted to ask you about vertical integration. Uh, vertical integration, of course, is, is not a new term. I originally thought it was uh, Andrew Carnegie and, and Ford that came up with vertical integration. Turns out there was a meatpacker in Chicago, uh, Mr. Swift, that invented sort of the, the vertical integration and Ford actually learned from Mr. Swift. But interesting. getting back to this century... Um, 
we see software companies merging with hardware companies. We saw Cambridge Quantum Computing and, and Honeywell Quantum. We, we now saw Pascal and Q&Co. What do you think is the outcome here? Do you think it's a good thing for the industry that you got these hardware and software blocks? Or do you think that customers should be able to choose sort of best of breed? I'll take the best software and I'll run it on the best hardware and so on. Yeah, that's a good question, um, Yuval. And as, a, as an M&A professional for my career, in fact, my thesis in college was written about mergers and acquisitions. So, I, so generally, I'm a fan of, of the synergies, the perspective synergies that a good merger can present. And I think you've seen that in some of the mergers you announced. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you have things that aren't formal mergers, but you have strong collaborations. Even the, even the Cambridge and um, Honeywell merger to form Continuum subsequently announced a partnership with Strangeworks, so yet more collaborations and ways to work together. So I think mergers in general in this industry are going to be important. There's a lot of disparate players trying to attack different parts of the challenges. You've got wiring and cryogenics and optics and hardware and software. And I think it's good in the early stages that people specialize in a, in a given area. And I also I think it will be good as, as the technology matures for good mergers to happen where synergies can be evolved and the best of both companies can be leveraged to uh, an even better uh, combined company. So I think we, I do think we'll see a lot more formal mergers and I do think we'll see a lot more collaborations announced. Is it good for the end customer? So I'm an executive hypothetically at a fortune 500 company. I want to get into quantum. I see that software company a merged with hardware company B but who knows if hardware companies B hardware is going to be the best in the long run. Maybe there are going to be someone else with different technology or more qubits or more logical qubits and so on. Wouldn't I be worried that software company A would not be working as well with other hardware companies? That's a possible situation. I think, um, I think that's probably a later day challenge and it's probably going to pertain to a small number of customers who are considering actually buying a, their own quantum computer. I think so many of the hardware providers today, last time I counted, there were eight or 10 that were providing their hardware platforms on the cloud. And many or most of the software solutions are open sourced and are, are somewhat agnostic to which hardware is being used. So I think if you are a, a company just exploring quantum computing, you're not quite ready to buy a machine, but you start you want to start using the cloud to access quantum computing, I don't think you're going to necessarily care if a hardware company and a software company merge. In fact, with Quantinuum, although they're using the Honeywell machines, the software that was written by Cambridge Quantum is is uh, is able to run on other machines and it will continue to do so. So if they continue with that philosophy and their software remains open, then the customers get the best of both worlds. And I think that's going to be the state of affairs for for the next year or two. So as we get closer to the end of our conversation, I want to go back to the beginning. You mentioned your Sinclair ZX80. Um, I used to program at Street Corners on TRS-80s at Radio Shacks, and then I had a, an Apple II with a four-digit serial number. Where are we in quantum relative to what you remember from the personal computing days? Are we at the Apple I moment, the Apple II? Uh, I think how, how close are we to this becoming something that's significant, not just for investment bankers. 
I think we're close. I think we're we are very early stages. I love this. I see pictures sometimes of the ENIAC machine, one of the first big computers, which was you know weighed tons and had thousands of vacuum tubes and wires. And you see pictures of the the women, you know, connecting the various wires. Well, when you look at the quantum computers today, they look very similar. You see lots when they're opened up and they take the cryogenics away. You see lots of wires and and people connecting them and interconnects. Um, so I think we're still at the very, very early stages. Certainly, we're not at a place where you have an individual that can have a hobbyist, you know, uh, the equivalent of a Sinclair in their house that can play with. We're not quite there yet, although you can now do that on the web. And so you can download the development kit from Quick Kids Kit, for example, from IBM and start coding and running algorithms on an IBM machine today. So we're so it's 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 more than just the very very beginnings, but I think it's still very early innings uh, in the game, and I'm really super excited about where it's going to go from here. Excellent. So, Russ, how can people get in touch with you to learn more about your work? Well, if you're interested in um, in our advisory services, if you're in a quantum company and you're considering an investor investment, you want some help, you can go to corporatefuel.com, and uh, there's lots of information about our activities there and my contact information. Or if you just want to learn more about quantum computing and want to come check out my blog, it's at quantumtech.blog. And I uh, generally post about once a week on introductory topics and about players in the industry. And and uh, stay tuned soon. I'll, I'll do one on Classic so your, uh, your listeners can learn more about your company. Once a week is a commitment. Uh, yeah. I hope, hope you continue to, to work at it. Uh, well, thank you very much, Russ, for joining me today. Thanks for having me so much. Thanks, Javel. Take care.